0: You know, we've heard for a while about what can each person do, and then somehow we go from what every person can do to there ought to be a policy. Well, in the middle of that, there's a whole heap of volunteers getting together and fixing stuff.
1: The dominant narrative that we're destructive and should feel ashamed of ourselves. Why does this actually do our work in sustainability a disservice? What's the importance of accepting that not everybody will approach or see environmental activism in the same way and that there is a wide variety of ways people connect with and help protect nature? That's just the tip of the iceberg of what you'll hear today. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Arbor Teas. Arbor Teas is a small family-owned organic tea company driven by sustainability in all of its practices, from the sourcing, packaging, use of renewables to power its operations, and more. I'm excited to share more about their work later, but for now, to our episode. Let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast for creatives, visionaries, and entrepreneurs dreaming of a sustainable future. Thank you for bringing your light. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. Our guests today, lucky for us, there are two of them. Our conservation psychologists at New Knowledge, a social science think tank working on challenges to our society and health, culture, media, and the biosphere. Our first guest is the president and CEO of New Knowledge and is also an architect, educator, and the president of the American Psychological Association's Division 34, Society for Environment, Population, and Conservation Psychology. And our second guest, who was the co-principal investigator of the Third National Climate Assessment Evaluation, specializes in inclusive practices in the environmental movement, equitable engagement with outdoor spaces, and community resilience. Green Dreamers starting off with what inspired their passions for nature and what got them into conservation psychology. Here are Dr. John Fraser and Dr. Rupu Gupta.
0: I grew up in the 1960s in a small industrial town and uh, did spend a lot of time on my uncle's farm. So I grew up with relationships with food animals and learned about the natural process back in the early 60s. And then um, by the late 60s, you know, I was still very young and impressionable and the first in what we would call this current wave of environmentalism, uh, came to the fore with the creation of things like the EPA. So I think I've had a very early experience being embedded in the environmental movement as kind of a public narrative, uh, and it was very close to my heart.
2: So I, I grew up in a big city in a very urban context in India, not that long ago as Johnny. <laughs> um, Thanks. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, As I grew up in that urban context, what really struck out to me was the fact that nature is not present at all times. And you have to really seek it out Mm -hmm. to be able to connect and, you know, enjoy it. But then what was also evident to me was, you know, there are close connections between human well-being and the environmental conditions. We do things to the environment that impact it adversely, thinking about uh, the air we breathe, thinking about the water. We uh, consume. So all of that really solidified how, how the mutual relationship between nature and humans is. And um, I continue to think about how I can apply it into a professional career. And fortunately, I found a pathway through applied work in conservation psychology.
0: You asked us what conservation psychology is, and I think it's important to sort of mention that it's not that old a discipline. We're really on about 18 years since the first ideas started to form. Conservation psychology is the study of the human mind and mental process in relationship to how we protect the environment. We tend to think about ourselves as an activist discipline that's trying to help people migrate away from our addiction to the overconsumption of natural resources on which all life depends. Now, that sounds kind of mission statement-y because it is. Um, we, we recognize as psychologists that the outcome we want to measure is not just people. It's also that the biosphere starts to heal itself so that future generations can benefit from its wealth.
1: You mentioned that conservation psychology is a quite a new discipline and focus. Why was there a need for this specific niche of a field of study?
2: My entry point to it is really psychology and social psychology thinking about our relationship with nature and when we when we think about the problem that the world faces in terms of its environmental health it is human caused so the solutions have to be derived through understanding what the barriers and motivations are that humans may have to care for nature or not. And that's how I I got interested in this field and thought social psychology, which lets us really understand how others influence us, is one really insightful way to get into uh, this work and think about also learning from other disciplines, not just psychology, other related fields like environmental studies, like conservation biology, which was foregrounding some of the conservation psychology approach All of that really speaks to the current practice and state of this new field.
0: One of my friends, Dr. Britton Scott, said, uh, there are no environmental problems. We just have problems of human behavior. Mm. And I think that (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, when I was first teaching conservation psychology, I would, would often say that I'm fortunate to be able to teach the last sentence of every conservation biology paper ever written, because that sentence tends to be people should stop that. Mm. (laughs) And that is a human mental process that we have a whole field around.
1: Do you think the idea, well, do you think that calling this environmental issues kind of uh, separates us from the actual issues? So it kind of prevents meaningful action and solutions because we feel
0: like it's over there. It's certainly been a problem of the field.
2: Yeah. And you know what doesn't help is the fact that there's another similar field called environmental psychology, because what environmental psychology focuses on is the built environment and how people are affected by our built environment mm. and maybe even the natural environment. But the reci- the reciprocal relationship where uh, humans are situated within the larger context of nature is missing. So I think the, the term conservation psychology was very purposeful, was very intentional, because it is about humans' actions to take care of nature in whatever ways that is meaningful and relevant for specific groups.
1: Today, you both collaborate with your work at New Knowledge. Can you share briefly what New Knowledge aims to do and how you go about making this happen?
0: We're a social science think tank. It's actually kind of a simple thing. We are transdisciplinary, so we have people working with us who are anthropologists, sociologists, uh, political economists, cognitive psychologists. We try to find people who come from different disciplines so that we can partner with people who want to make the world a better place. Very simply, we work with partners in order for them to develop better skills at helping people live to their fullest potential. And because we're conservation psychologists, we try to do that in ways which can both build strong democratic participation and help people work toward a thriving biosphere.
1: And I know your work is really collaborative and transdisciplinary, as you mentioned, which is why it was important for both of you to be here to offer your different perspectives and backgrounds. Um, How do you think this transdisciplinary approach has allowed you and your team to reach new findings or come up with more powerful solutions for sustainability?
2: Yeah, great question. You know, I mean, we we are dealing with these grand challenges uh, in the health, in the biosphere sector, uh, in, in thinking about the role of media. And we really need that comprehensive view of how to solve a problem. We are conservation psychologists. That's our kind of tool Kit that we bring. But we know there are others out there as well, which we need to respect and properly include in any given situation. And that's part of the inclusivity we try to bring in internally as well as uh, externally when we are
0: working with partners. One of the ways we talk with our partners about the value of our process is that sometimes it's simple and it seems very Academic when you first hear it, but um, we like to use an example. We were doing a study for a very well-known aquarium, and one of our staff is an actress, and she was doing data collection. And she came back, and you know, we said, "So are they learning the messages that the aquarium wants to share?" And she said, "Well, it's a problem because of the echo in the room. People Mm. are talking too quickly, and the echo is masking their critical concepts they want to deliver. And if they play the room like an instrument." Mm people will hear it better. And so we went back to them and said, this is what transdisciplinary work can produce because while we had worked so hard to craft messages with them, having somebody recognize that the instrument was the building, not the person, changed our focus and helped us help them be more effective at providing the learning people were interested in.
1: That's So So powerful. it's not
0: always complicated. Sometimes it's very simple, but it means that we all listen with different ears and different academic training and that means together we build a stronger answer.
1: I feel like a lot of what's been said about our sustainability issues today more so have to do with the literal things that have happened. So for example, the invention of single-use plastics leading us to where we are today with our plastic pollution crisis, or the industrial revolution that's really disconnected us from nature and turned our relationship with nature to one that's more transactional. But not a lot has been said about why all of this happened from a psychological standpoint. So based on your expertise, how do you think we got to where we are today, where we're collectively living in ways that is not only detrimental to our environment, but also as a consequence detrimental to our own uh, public health and welfare, because that's not very biologically intelligent for us to do so.
0: People didn't become this dominant species on the planet because we had our act together. Uh, you know, <laughs> um, sometimes we we hark back to this yeah. wonderful time when we lived more sustainably in connection with the environment. I'm sorry, Elizabethan Europe was like really. Plagues happened. Uh, you know, we, you know, part of the reason the forest recovered was the Black Plague. People choke themselves out in cities all the time. If you look at some of the Aboriginal cultures going back thousands of years here in the U.S., we see the record shows they ate themselves into oblivion um, because they ate. Every- everything edible. Uh, there was nothing left. So, you know, we create deprivation every so long, every, almost every few generations. We just find new ways to screw up the amount of the planet that we rely on. <laughs> uh, you know, 1800s, people evacuated Vermont and New Hampshire because there were no trees left and all of that sort of nice soil that they thought was there was washing into the rivers. So when we think about it as if somehow we came disconnected, no, we just came up with new ways to screw things up. Uh, so like not assume it was all perfect. It's really more understanding that it's not tragedy. It's silly symphony, that (laughs) this is kind of the comedy of humanity.
2: And it's not rational, (laughs) you know, how we really uh, act, especially in terms of our relationship with nature, which is complicated to start with. We are social creatures. We rely on others to really influence how we think, how we act, and what we do. And even if we want to downplay that, that's always a guiding factor in our lives. So, you know, there may be mismatches between our personal values of how we want to care for nature in one way or another, and what our our social groups, our reference groups, might think about us. You know, we can't if if we're at a restaurant trying to make sustainable seafood choices and pull up a Monterey Bay app to tell us that our, our friends at the same table might be ridiculing us for doing that. And that might not help us make that sustainable choice we want to. So mm-hmm. the extent to which you know our own personal standards align with that of our social groups, the more likely we might be able to do the right thing, in this case environmental uh, action. But that's difficult at the societal level. You know, it's it's much more just complex, much more challenging. But at the end of the day, I think it's it's groups coming together, organizations coming together to really think about what some common ground might be that they can work together to solve the problems, environmental problems that are meaningful to them.
1: Speaking of destruction. John, in one of your YouTube videos online, you talked about the theological challenge in which a lot of stories that environmentalists tell around our current reality is that we are sinners as people and that by nature we cause destruction and we should therefore feel ashamed of ourselves. And I feel like this narrative is really common and I'd say dominant when we talk about sustainability. I know that you also mentioned the documentary, The Inconvenient Truth, as an example. And you also said what concerns you about this type of uh, narrative is that this isn't the way that most people see the world. And therefore, I'm guessing because it's not something that most people can relate to or resonate with. It's not effective at inspiring change. Can you expand more on this as well as point to any relevant research that we should know?
0: Well, I'll start with, <laughs> you did an amazing job summarizing what took me five minutes to say. So,
1: <laughs> it was so really helpful. I'll be sure to link to the video in our show notes so our
0: listener can check it out as well. Oh, super. Um, yeah, I think it's really not that complicated. Um, you know, when we feel threat, when we feel pressure that the world around us, something that we love, nature in this case, is threatened. It's very emotionally distressing. And the mental process of having other people feel your pain is part of a process that we go through as people, rationalizing our own sense of pain. So it makes sense that if I'm upset about this nature getting destroyed, I would like you to feel my pain, feel my suffering. And so we start telling these stories of tragedy like inconvenient truth because we want to shake people, right? It's what happens when we mourn the loss of a loved one. And so this mourning process produces these behaviors. Quite honestly, you know, if I'm going for a nice day in the forest with a a lecturer who's going to teach me about what's going on, the last thing I want to do is come home and say, wow, that person's really sad. Uh, You know, I cried. I don't want to go back there. But that's why I was saying earlier that I think of a lot of how we got where we are today is really, you know, the comedy of human. Human life. And by being self reflective, taking time to recognize that this is an emotional challenge and that we can be emotion forward in our thinking, but it doesn't mean that we have to have everybody feel the pain. It means that we have to acknowledge that we feel that pain ourselves and focus inward on our own well being rather than trying to externalize it to others. Because people have different ways and different paths to find their place in conservation, to find themselves in a place where we can make a, a better world. Now, this work starts back in the mid-2000s. I was talking to a colleague of mine, a clinical psychologist, about being in a meeting when I was working for a large uh, non-governmental or a conservation organization. And Honestly, the meetings were really intense. And when I described them, and it was like, they're not about big things. Like, it was like, is the sign properly worded? And yet the emotions were really elevated. And he said, that sounds kind of curious. And so we started to explore this with a global study we did to look at whether we were seeing people working in the conservation field, feeling emotional stress and trauma. And the evidence was pretty compelling that in fact there is uh, a concern. And so we published a paper. Um, in fact, we did a number of little follow-ups and published a paper called Sustaining the Conservationist in a journal called Ecopsychology. And that paper really describes the symptomatic challenge we face, the symptoms of what it looks like, the personal experience of the conservationist, and how we need to build better health practices uh, and wellness practices for people in conservation. Now, the good news in that paper and what we found subsequently with we have about six or seven papers on the work we've done with the National Network for Ocean Climate Change Interpretation that focus on what it means to have social support, what it means when people feel your pain and feel that that same stress. These people end up being healthier if I'm working in a community where people acknowledge that they also feel the same way. Mm. In fact, we're seeing this play out now across the whole community that is doing something about climate resilience.
1: So we may feel that pain on a personal level, but it's important for us to recognize the importance of social support to help us be able to stay stay motivated in this work and be healthier as individuals. And it's also important to recognize that simply relaying our pain onto others may not be effective in inspiring change, and that more so finding the joy and the pleasure in reconnecting with nature is what can be more effective.
0: Yeah, or acknowledging that when you are in nature or experiencing nature, that that your feelings may not be the same as others, and that's okay.
1: In my personal creative work and when I talk about sustainability, it might be in part because of my personality, but also in part uh, from what I've learned about positive psychology and behavior change. But I try to always bring out that element of the positive sides of connecting to nature and living more mindfully. But sometimes I do feel a sense of guilt in taking this approach because I'm like, Mm. how can I portray the fun and... Uh, the positives, the satisfaction and the pleasures in sustainability when there is so much pain and injustice and serious degradation to address. So I don't know, maybe this is just for me personally, but what pieces of guidance or expertise can you share with me on this?
0: Well, one of the things uh, in our recommendations is that for people who are environmentally connected, who really feel that they are continuous with the natural system around them, that that nature experience can be a trigger. It's important to reflect on that and to take time to reflect on your emotional experience. Looking at a forest, when you know that that forest has a a toxic problem, like you know, the acid rain, the beetles that are drilling into the the forest that we see in the Rockies. Um, That's emotionally complex work. That's not very, isn't that pretty? When someone says, isn't that beautiful? It's like, it's beautiful in death. That is a complicated thing. So we shouldn't treat nature for those who are really environmentally aware as some kind of cure it's also the thing that sets us off emotionally. And we need to be much more careful of how we acknowledge that pain. Mm.
1: And the last thing I want to touch on in terms of our messaging and language is that in sharing stories that drive action, a lot of Uh, Stories told by film and videos reasonably focus on things that we can relate to as humans. So, for example, John, you also said that it's often easy to talk about animals that look like us, primates, chimpanzees, even bunnies, cats, and dogs. It's not as easy to talk about the conservation of animals we see as aversive or threatening. Um, But if we want to conserve biological systems, we have to accept nature in all of its diversity, end quote. And in this mass extinction that's occurring right now, we not only need to help conserve the individual plants and animals that may not be so attractive to us, but also to protect the entire biosphere as a holistic ecosystem. And I feel like that's a lot more difficult for us to conceptualize. How do you think we can work with this to motivate compassion and care beyond the individual species that we might feel more connected to?
2: You know, I mean, we have to recognize that we as humans are one aspect of nature. This is where the whole notion of partnerships come in. One of the reasons why I'm very hopeful about the environmental movement as a whole is the potential I see in terms of groups working together to really advance the space. And the role that the informal learning world can really play in that solution is really great. When you think about zoos, aquariums, botanic gardens, nature spaces that are really making those connections that people share in these urban spaces that we live in um i think it's important for us to think about where and how these connections can be fostered and the, and highlighting the diversity of nature uh, that really exists
0: you know it's not easy to be um super super connected to nature and i think we often want people to have you know deep nature experiences as the only path to understanding and it's it's more layered than that it's much more complex not everybody needs to be or will yeah. be uh, fully connected to the natural systems on which all life depends. There, you know, There's a whole bunch of people that are going to say that's just a pretty forest, and that's okay. I think one of the challenges thinking that there's only one path to sustainability when there are so many ways of experiencing nature and participating in the process.
2: And let me take that like into a slightly different direction come yeah. which is just thinking about our how we connect with nature much of uh, what the environmental movement has focused on over the years like since it started has really emphasized these dominant narratives of who's connecting with nature and how and it's typically white privileged groups that are the face of who cares for nature and you know what strategies they use that to, they use to um, you know forge these connections and what that means is you're overlooking the, you know, very nuanced ways in which different groups engage with nature and that there are issues of access and barriers to who can actually even get to connect with nature it's very different for racial ethnic minority groups in general so th- that face of who's caring about nature is very homogeneous and it it excludes you know the the broader racial and uh, ethnic diversity that exists in the US which is a real shame because we really need to appreciate the cultural aspects that underline our connections with nature. And we've done some work where we've actually talked about cultural competence in terms of respecting and understanding the different ways in which we connect with nature. We did some work with the Nature Conservancy and how uh, how youth in their STEM programs, when they engage with staff, older staff in rural parts of the country, uh, really helped the staff develop cultural competence and kind of expand their understanding of who and how you can engage with nature. The good news is that uh, the environmental field, even though the face is predominantly white, it's much more diverse than you would expect it to be. We did a national study a couple of years ago, which which found that you know it was phenomenal where uh, people are actually uh, doing environmental education work. And it gets excluded, especially when it's not in the professional context. When you think about on-the-ground work that's happening in communities that are really focused on issues of health and how it's tied, di- human health and how it's tied to the environmental uh, conditions, you you are bringing up a very different way in which people are connecting with nature. And, you know, it's really up to the field to think about uh, meaningful ways in which we can think about crossing these superficial boundaries of who and how to connect with nature. Mm.
1: And how do you think we as individuals can help foster more inclusivity within the space and also to help elevate more alternative narratives uh, to do with environmental action so then more people of different backgrounds can feel empowered to also participate and take action?
2: Yeah, it's really a challenge to be able to kind of move beyond your own very personal narratives of how and what kind of excites you about nature and respecting uh, others view on it. But we've been part of projects where there are partnerships being built very strategically, where the charge is to really be very uh, respectful of these ways in which relationships are being built. And I think part of what's needed and what's really exciting for me in the field right now is that there are approaches and programs happening across sectors, whether it's in business sectors or um, in in government sectors that are coming together to really think about new ways in which people can connect and appreciate each other's uh, views. Yeah. Um, I work on the 10-Minute Walk campaign, which is which is trying to create a country where everyone is 10 minutes away from a park with three national partners. Their vision is really grand, but they're doing it in a way that different um, groups are need to be part of a partnership, a coalition, that's rethinking how green spaces and parks are being developed. And that's really a long-term, you know, grand strategy, but that's what's needed, as difficult as yeah. the charges.
0: I think one of the things that we're pushing for is, There is no orthodoxy for how we relate to nature. Mm. Our culture is implicated in what we find to be restorative, valuable, and how we should interact. And we can learn a lot by just being more culturally aware. I think that work was transformative when the dominant narrative was, you know, the nature movement was white. And certainly that's what it looks like when you look at the large national uh, organizations. But our study showed that on the ground in communities may have different priorities and fo- focuses. But I'll tell you, it looks more like America than you'd think. In fact, we even see more minority engagement uh, than we see in the general population. And that's, you know, certainly exciting. But we first have to start by acknowledging that's okay. That is the way people are experiencing their nature, their culture, and together we'll get there.
1: Well, at a point when we really need massive shifts in our society and culture to support healthier behaviors, that can really protect nature. Uh, Based on everything that you've studied in terms of what actually drives positive outcomes in different scenarios, and based on what you know in terms of what influences our behaviors, our values, and popular culture at large, what do you think we need most to accelerate towards a
2: thriving planet?
0: Well, that wasn't an easy question.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I do think it does build on what we've been chatting all about. So it really boils down to These purposeful partnerships, you know, if you're trying to create societal level change, we need to work in groups and in organizations who believe in a shared perspective to actually work beyond differences, superficial differences that we may bring to the table, but use that as a learning process to understand how each of us can contribute to changing, you know, whatever environmental piece you're working on. What that means is, you know, from an individual perspective, we need to have an openness and interest in really learning from each other uh, if you're going to build a stronger, better planet for ourselves.
0: We need to look at ourselves as recovering the concepts of democracy or strong democracy and citizenship. Individually, I don't think we're going to fix things. But together, in small groups and small communities, the more active we are with our communities, the more I think we're going to find our our way into a a thriving nature. You know, we've heard for a while about what can each person do, and then somehow we go from what every person can do to there ought to be a policy. Well, in the middle of that, there's a whole heap of volunteers getting together and fixing stuff. Mm. You know, beach cleanup is like, you know, a classic example of, of realizing that, you know, we have a waste problem and we can fix our waste problem together. We thrive in temples and churches and bowling clubs, and yet somehow we act as if they're not present. So I think we need to sort of shift our focus to recognize there is a civics world here, that we're ignoring in the environmental movement. And that's where we will find the narratives and find the stories that are useful in our communities and in our, in our bioregions that are going to be effective.
1: This has been such an insightful and enriching conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise. Uh, we would, of course, love to keep learning more from you because I know you're both such a wealth of wisdom and there's a lot more we need to learn on this topic. So what is next for you and where can we follow your work online?
0: Follow us online is super easy uh, because at Twitter, we're we're uh, newknow.org, N-E-W-K-N-O-W-O-R-G, and our website is newknowledge.org, and we're about new knowledge organization. Next steps, we're really trying to get more engaged with supporting people who are change agents at the mid-career level, the policy level with briefings and synthesis. What we've been finding with our work is that people really do gravitate toward the simple summaries, the simple explanations. And so our publishing strategy is moving toward uh, trying to tell stories in simple ways and help people get up to speed on the current theory.
2: Yeah, you know, I'm I'm very excited about some of the local uh, initiatives. We're working with the Waterfront Alliance, which is trying to create a strong, resilient harbor across New New York and New Jersey like borders. And you know, it's we're working with huge task force that are trying to strategize about how to work together again, like with business folks, with the private sector, with the government, with community groups. How can we solve this together? And so it's really exciting to see how. That relationship building is happening to move these big challenges
0: along small p politics not the big electoral stuff but the mm-hmm. the little uh, social political movements that we see where people just say you know what together we can fix this problem and it's amazing what a bunch of smart people can do when they get together
1: before we go into our final 5 i wanted to tell you more about our sponsor Arbor Tees sources loose leaf and organic certified teas. They're the first and only company to package all their teas in backyard compostable packaging. Their operations run on solar energy, and all of their business efforts are offset by carbon fund. I really appreciate how thoughtful they are with everything that they do, and also love that they're a tight-knit and committed small team. They share lunch together every day, they compost everything they can at their facility, and just take into account how all their decisions impact the To shop Arbor Teas Sustainable Organic Teas, just head to arborteas.com. That's A-R-B-O-R-T-E-A-S dot com. In case you're on the go, I'll also have this linked at our website as well, so be sure to check them out later. For now, to our final five. Let's power through. What uplifting or enlightening social media account or publication do you follow?
2: Outdoor Afro, I don't know if you follow them, but they're amazing. They celebrate diversity in who's engaging in recreation and outdoor connections. And they're changing the face of who's engaging with nature, which is what is tremendously exciting to me.
0: You know, I'm a bit more like a millennial in that I don't follow a lot of things directly as sources. But I do want to shout out to the PBS NewsHour Science Squad, if you do get a chance to say hey to Seekan Akpan and Julia Griffin for the big (laughs) stories they're doing, because they've been covering a lot of the environment, but they do it in such an exciting way. They're partners of ours, so it's hard for us to not say we follow them. I love them. (laughs) But mostly, you know, I put in keywords uh, to try to teach my algorithms to go toward environment, humor and innovation, because that surfaces all those wacky stories that are about people fixing the problem. Problem. And so that just makes me happy, and I'm trying to teach algorithms to give me better news.
2: What do you tell
1: yourself to stay positive and inspired?
2: That we're all in this together, <laughs> and we we may feel isolated, but, you know, there's, there, there are more kindred souls out there than we imagine.
0: The one thing, an advantage of working in this transdisciplinary social scientist group is that we are really fixing things. Every day, I love coming to work because we have fun, we enjoy one another's company, And honestly, our solutions are fixing things.
1: What are you working
2: on right now for your health? Very purposeful breaks during the walk day, (laughs) walks in the park. I love those and photography.
0: And I've been looking forward to spring, getting through this Mm -hmm. last bit of winter so that I can get back on my bike to bike to work because I live at the top of Manhattan Island and I work right at the bottom. So it's a chance to see the whole Hudson on my way to work. It's really a nice ride.
2: What are you working on right now to live more sustainably? I feel really fortunate living in New York City because of the public transportation options it offers. Um, It is a conscious choice to live in the city rather than the suburbs. So um, that is something that's very important to me. And I try and limit my meat consumption. I am not vegetarian, but that's one small thing I can do to help the environment.
0: You know, I think Rupu answered all the simple ones. For us, um, when we're already answering things like, you know, I've got a plant-based diet, I live in an apartment, we don't own a car. It gets mm-hmm. kind of wacky. Um, but what I've been really trying to do lately is look for where the organizations that are doing good and how to how to partner with them or help leverage that work. I think that it's really at the organizational level. One of the things that I've been particularly concerned about is how much medical toxins end up in our biosphere as a result of of end-of-life process. It's kind of complicated, and I think that's an area where we could do a whole lot more because while people could live a completely sustainable life in the last six months, the number of chemicals that go into their life is actually toxic to the environment and the way we treat them and their disposal is not something we've reconciled well as a society. So I think we need to be thinking more strategically about medical waste and medical management.
2: You know what I shared, maybe simple journey, but uh,
0: <laughs> but, things. It's,
2: it's, but it's important for us to uh, really focus on what we can do in our own little way because it helps us be ourselves and be reinforced that we are doing something about the environment. So we can continue to do that in our work and in our personal lives as well.
0: Yeah. To keep us healthy, <laughs> we don't try to solve everything in one yeah. day.
1: Definitely. Um, what makes you most hopeful about our planet at the moment?
0: I look at the little things that people are doing in communities and it excites me, but I think one of the bigger pictures that's kind of amazing, that's kind of makes it worth watching television (laughs) is that we now conceive of the planet as one interconnected whole. And when something bad happens, like we're doing this interview right after a, a horrific tornado hit, uh, you know, Alabama and the Ability for people to mobilize resources and respond with compassion that quickly. This was unheard of. I mean, the Crusades, you didn't hear for, you know, a decade about how badly it went and how people suffered. And it was all sort of abstract. And today we see it, we witness it, and we are able to release resources and generate support that can help alleviate the problem. So the Cajun Navy just makes me happy because they are like, I got a boat. I can save people. What's the question? It's just that's the amazing thing about our society today. And that tells me we can fix the big problems.
2: It is about communities coming together and it is about organizations, you know, moving beyond their silos and eager to sort of construct meaning and learn from each other to create that societal level change. And we just need to keep that movement going.
1: And what final
2: words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Don't be afraid to reach out to others just because they seem different to you. There's more in common than you can
0: imagine. Well, that's enough wisdom for me. I'm stopping there.
1: Don't be afraid to reach out to others because they may seem different and there's more in common than we may think. To add to that, I wanna say too that that difference can also guide us to see our personal blind spots and inspire us to get even more creative and to be able to think outside the box. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. To become one of our first original 100 Green Dreamer supporters, where you'll get bonus monthly Q&A episodes, be invited to join our upcoming private support community, and also forever be written down in my books to receive early previews and discounts to everything we work on in the future, just head to greendreamer.com Patreon. That's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. We were just talking a lot about community in this episode, so I hope that you'll join us and become one of our patreon supporters so you can join our community as well your support will really help make it possible for us to continue the show and to be able to share more resources on our website and really i I thank you from the bottom of my heart for your support whether through patreon by being here or just you know sharing green dreamer with your friends as always, you can find the two tweetable takeaways from this interview and the full show notes with links and resources at greendreamer.com slash 120 for episode 120. You can reach me with feedback on how I can improve the show for you through the website's contact page, and you can find me on Instagram at Kameya Shane, as well as our podcast account at Green Dreamer Podcast. Finally, as we're wrapping up, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, Hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.